And as you're sitting down and getting settled, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to be back in Nehemiah chapter 3 again uh, this week. Last week we did the overview of the chapter and, and kind of pulled out some principles. And, and this week we're going, to, um, we're going to look at some very specific things with respect to this chapter uh, on, in the gates. And so, so similar to last week, we don't have a, a specific passage per se. We're not looking at you know, these specific verses. I mean, we'll look at a number of verses throughout the chapter, but um, we're, we're going we're gonna to kind of pick and choose based on where these gates are located. So why don't we go ahead and open up in a word of prayer, um, and then we'll get into our study. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for loving us. Thank you so much for the time we have together this morning. And, and as we sang about, um, well, there is joy here. There's joy in being part of the body of Christ, and, and there's joy that comes with assembling and gathering together. And I'm so thankful for that, and I'm thankful for the time that we have together this morning, and, and I'm, I'm thankful that Jeff and Corey and Vinny had, had a good trip. I'm glad that they're back with us, and, and we want to do want to lift up the Horvaths to you and just continue to put them before you and ask you to use them, ask you to encourage them, and, and Lord, we look forward to just all the future holds. Uh, if, if you tarry, um, just the, the ministry they'll be able to have there. But I pray that you be with us this morning. I pray that you use your word to, to dissect our lives. Um, in the areas that we need it, and, and Lord, I pray everything that is said is true to your word. I pray it's glorifying and it's honoring to you, and Lord, we, we love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so like I said, last week we, we kind of did an overview of the chapter, and in doing that overview, we looked at some specifics with respect to, to why we need to have a focus on, on building for the Lord, why it's important, and then how to go about doing it in a successful way. So we talked about how we need to understand the significance of the work, that this is a work of the Lord. That was uh, certainly the, the message there in Nehemiah. And then we looked at the scope of the work and the, the type of work and how it's done and how it's only accomplished through this book. Uh, it's the only way that we can have success in the work of the Lord. And then we saw the specificity of the work and the synergy of the work that we all have a part, every one of us, irrespective of background, affluence, all of it. And when we understand that, and when we all come together and work together, we can accomplish something great for the Lord. And then last, we talked about our need to understand the story of the work. And, and just that we need to know that God keeps records. And we will give an account one day for what we did or what we didn't do in this body. And so that was last week, but today we're going to stay in chapter 3 and we're going to spend some time solely looking at the gates of the city. And, and this is an interesting study. We'll, this is one we'll actually start today. We're going to get through five gates today and then we'll finish in a couple weeks. I'm actually going to be out of town next week. Craig is going to be preaching and, and I had asked him when we set the schedule, I had asked him to start chapter 4 thinking I'd be done with this by now, but it'll be all right. We'll, we'll finish up um, when I get back. We'll get started on chapter 4 next week. But this is an important aspect to, to where we're going in this series as we are comparing our lives and comparing our church to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem and those gates as protection for that city. And as we laid out in the introduction, uh, this 
obviously was a historically true event, as everything in the Bible is. It's, the Bible is true as a history book, as, as well as a, a book for us and a book of, of doctrine. And Israel was God's chosen nation, and Jerusalem was God's chosen city. Within that nation, it's where the temple was built. And when Israel was functioning properly as a nation, it was the hub and the center of God's attention. And we've made the correlation to us today and this day and this age. And, and, and we know that God has set aside Israel for the time being. Now, he's, he's going to get back to them. He's not finished with Israel. But in this dispensation today, God isn't working his program through a chosen nation. He's working it through a chosen body, the body of Christ, which is the church. And so there are great pictures and there are great lessons to learn from Israel that relate inspirationally and even some doctrinally to us. Paul told us this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He starts that chapter by describing the history, you know, at least part of the history of the nation of Israel. And then he says this in verse 6. He said, now these things were our examples, all these things that happened to Israel were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then down in verse 11, now all these things happen unto them for end samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. You see, God wants us to see the pictures, and he wants us to learn from the nation of Israel, and he set things up so that we would. So we have Israel, and we have Jerusalem, and we have the temple inside the walls of Jerusalem, and, and now we know that as believers in Christ, God is inside of us today, and we are the temple, and as, as Matthew 5.14 tells us, the, the light of God in the form of the Holy Spirit is in us, and it is, to, it is to shine out of us, and in that, we become like Jerusalem, which was a city set on a hill. Matthew 5.14 says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. But the problem for us, just like it was for Israel, just like it was in Jerusalem, is that when we lose battles to our enemies, and when we lose them in our personal lives, and we lose them as a church, those walls of protection slowly but surely get broken down. This is described in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28. It says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. And that was certainly the problem in Jerusalem that Nehemiah was trying to solve. And the truth is, it's the problem in Christianity today as well. And it's a problem in churches. The walls of protection are broken down. And in, in many cases, need repaired. And so this all relates to our lives. And, and in, in Nehemiah chapter 3, the pictures bring out the importance. And the pictures that we're going to look at today of the gates bring out some important aspects that we need to understand in our lives. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, there are certain things that you need in your life and there are certain things that you need out of your life. If you ever want to glorify God with your life, you need some things in, you need some things out. And, and those gates were the way in and out of the city. And they picture the ins and the outs of our life. 
You even see this same concept within the temple itself. In Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 11, while speaking about the temple, Ezekiel says, And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the, the form of the house. It's actually God speaking. He's speaking through Ezekiel. Show them the form of the house, and the fa- this is the temple that he's speaking about, and the fashion thereof, and listen to what he says, and the goings out thereof, and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and do them. You see, there are the goings out, and there are the comings in. And this is so important to understand if if you want to experience victory in the Christian life. And there are things you need in. And there are things you need out, and there are doors that you need to go through, and there are doors that you need to go in. And the gates that we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 show us exactly that. And they show us those comings and goings. And it's interesting, at least to me, as we've already mentioned before, as we were doing an introduction, there are ten gates that we're going to go through. There are ten gates that are noted in chapter 3. And chapter 3 is the chapter that kind of outlines the entire work around the wall. But there are two other gates mentioned in other parts of the book of Nehemiah that are not discussed in chapter 3. You can actually find them a couple different places, but, but they're both mentioned in one verse together. That's Nehemiah 12, 39. It says, and from above the gate of Ephraim, and above the old gate, and above the fish gate, and the tower of Hananiel, and the tower of Meah, even under the sheep gate, and they stood still in the prison gate. All right, so we see a number of gates listed in that verse. You have the old gate, you have the fish gate, you have the sheep gate. Those are all found in chapter 3. We're going to talk about those. But the gate of Ephraim and the prison gate, you don't see in chapter 3. You don't find them anywhere in that chapter. And so I believe there were actually 12 gates around the city of Jerusalem, which makes sense when you know prophecy involving New Jerusalem that God will create in Revelation 21. In verses 10 through 12 of that, that chapter, the Bible says, And he carried me away in the, in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which were the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So since there will be twelve, it makes sense that there were twelve. But God chose to only give us ten in Nehemiah chapter 3, and I don't know exactly why, although I suspect it has something to do with the pictures in the gates and how relevant they are to the Gentile church. Because while 12 is the number for Israel, 10 is the number for Gentiles. So that makes some sense to me, but I I wouldn't claim to know all that God is trying to do in his word. So for whatever reason, we get 10 gates in chapter 3. And we're going to go through them one by one. And I I need you to, to, to pay attention to not only each gate individually, right? We're going to look at them one by one, and they each have a specific meaning and a specific purpose and a specific picture. So you need to see each one, but you also need to see the progression because the ten pictures actually paint one mural. It's one mural that's being painted, and it's a mural of your life, and it's a mural of my life. And it all starts in verse 1 with the sheep gate. 
Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, And Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even at the tower of Maah. They sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. So the sheep gate was the gate that the animals were brought through to be sacrificed at the temple. So it would have been closest to the, to the entrance of the temple. The market within the city would have been right near this gate. And this is the first gate mentioned because this is where the Christian life begins. And it begins with a work done by the high priest, which is a type of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, which is passed under the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So the, the work done at the sheep gate was a work that had to be done by the high priest. And, and the work, there's a work in our life that could only be done by Christ through a sacrifice that could only be offered by Christ. You see, the sheep gate speaks of the cross. And the sacrifice for sin as the Lamb of God was led to the slaughter. John 1.29 says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he did just that as he willingly laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice for your sin and mine. Isaiah 53, which is a beautiful picture of Christ as that sacrifice, says this in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. And the sheep gate is one that we all must walk through, that we all must accept his perfect sacrifice as our own in order to be saved. In order to become a son of God. It's what Jesus was saying in, in John chapter 10. Verses 7 through 9, here we see, we find one of the great I am's of Christ. There's a number of I am statements, he says. And in John chapter 10, verse 7, then said Jesus unto them, again, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. That's another word for door. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. You see, there is no other way for lost sheep to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem but by the sacrifice of Christ. There's only one way to be saved. We, we know this from John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Listen. He is not one of the doors. There, there are not multiple alternatives. He is the door. He is the way. He is the gate. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And, and, and with all this in mind, 
Isn't it interesting that if you go back into John's Gospel, you will find in chapter 5 that it, it is at this precise location where Jesus healed an impotent man, someone that couldn't heal himself. In John chapter 5, verse 1, we read, and, and, and this, there was a, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, right inside the sheep gate, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And, and you can finish out the, you know, the next eight verses or so. But what you see in those verses is, is Jesus healing a, a particular helpless sinner that was impotent and, and couldn't walk. And Jesus' healings are always a picture of salvation. And this is where your Christian life starts. And it is available to all. Because as we go through this gates, what we're going to see is that some of them have beams, and some of them have locks, and some of them have bars. Sheep gate has none of them. This gate doesn't lock. There are no bars to keep people out because Jesus' sacrifice is available to all. All can come through that gate. You see, contrary to Calvinistic doctrine, Whosoever will can. God did not preordain a select few to be able to enter this gate. The gate is open to everyone because Christ died for everyone. There are no locks. There are no bars. But you get to choose whether you enter in or not. God leaves that decision up to you. But if you, enter, if you choose to enter in through that sheep gate and accept his sacrifice for your sin. And you exchange your sinful life for his perfect life. And in doing so, you are set apart for a holy purpose, which we talked about last week as the definition of being sanctified. And, th and that was something unique to this gate. Look back at verse 1 again in Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests and they builded the sheep gate they sanctified it, set up the doors of it. You see, this gate was sanctified, and it's the only one that was. No other gates are sanctified because there's only one path. And there's only one path to sanctification, even for us as a Christian. And that is through sacrifice. It was true in the Old Testament. It was part of the sanctification process, the, the sacrifice, Leviticus 8.30. For example, it says, And Moses, Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which was upon the altar after a sacrifice and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments, upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. See, a sacrifice was necessary as part of that sanctification. It was part of it in the Old Testament and, and it's part of it in the New Testament as well. Our process of sanctification occurs through sacrifice. And our sacrifice is found in Romans 12. We've, we've read this verse many times, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect 
will of God. And when we live that life of sacrifice, because of his sacrifice, we can accomplish the holy purpose that we've been set apart to do. And that brings us to the second gate, which is the fish gate. And the fish gate is found in verse 3. It says, but the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And the fish gate speaks to our holy purpose of being fishers of men. Because once you enter into the family of God through the sheep gate, you are sent back out into the world through the fish gate to evangelize. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples, that if they would follow him through that sheep gate, he would send them back out. The fish gate is fishers of men. You see that in Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus said unto them, come ye after me. And Matthew, he says, follow me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And throughout time and eternity, fish in the Bible have always been likened to men. And followers of Jesus have always been likened to fishermen. And this is the primary reason that you and I as believers in Christ are still here on this earth. Jesus didn't take us to heaven to be with him when we got saved because he has a job for us to do down here. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.30 that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he that winneth souls is wise. So listen, if we want this church and if you want your life to really be about the things that God cares about, then soul winning evangelism has to be a part of that somehow. And this is a command he gave to his disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's what he said. We must learn to walk out the fish gate and become those fishers of men. It's our responsibility as followers in Christ. It's not our, our sole responsibility. We'll talk about that in the next gate. But, but listen, one problem I see in Christianity today is a is a focus on doing ministry only with and, and even to other Christians. And it can't be only that. We're a hospital for the sick. We have the answer that reconciles man back to God. And part of what we do has to be sharing that with the world, through our individual lives, through our church ministries. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Right? That's evangelism. It's explaining to people that God in Christ has made a way to man. That God sent his son as that lamb, as that sacrifice. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And there's a, a great illustration of this truth in the letter that, that Paul wrote to Philemon. Many of you know the story. I, I, I love the picture in that just one chapter book. Uh, but in case you don't know the story, uh, Philemon had a slave, Onesimus. He had stolen from his master, Philemon, and he had fled. And, and because of his crimes, he could have been crucified. But in the providence of God, obviously, Onesimus had met up with Paul somewhere. Paul had led him to the Lord. So Paul writes his epistle to Philemon to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus and, and to receive him back home. And look at what Paul says in verses 17 and 18 of Philemon. He says, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. 
If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. And Paul was willing to pay the bill, so to speak, so that Philemon and Onesimus could be reconciled. That's what, you know, what theologians would call imputation. And that's the message we share. I mean, this, of course, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But, but listen, here is the point in all this. The, the good news in today's age, the good news of Jesus Christ does not come by means of angels. It's not announced from a loud, you know, heavenly voice. It doesn't even come from, you know, looking over at church fathers and looking at their writings and, and reading those. In each generation, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is delivered by living, breathing men and women who speak from their own experience. That's the responsibility that we've been given. And it's time to take that responsibility seriously. It's time to tell people the truth and get to work. And and this isn't about guilt and manipulation. That's, That's not what I'm trying to do here. I do not want to guilt you into anything. What I want is that you understand what happened at the Sheep Gate. Because if you understand that, and you understand the exchange of life that occurred when you decided on your own accord to walk through that Sheep Gate, then evangelism will be a natural outpouring of your life. Because that's what we see with marriage, being the picture of Christ in the church, right? According to Ephesians chapter 5. Well, what is the natural outpouring of the intimacy of a marital relationship? It's children. And, and understand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying if, if a married couple doesn't have children. I'm, I'm not saying they don't love each other. I'm not saying they're in sin or anything like that. But the picture is such that the intimacy of a love relationship in marriage under normal circumstances produces fruit. Therefore... It should lead, that you should understand where I'm going here, the intimacy of our love relationship with our Savior should produce fruit as well. It should lead to the new birth in others. God lays these pictures out for us, clear as can be. But you can't program that. You know, many churches have tried. That's not the way to do it. It should be a natural process for all of us as we spend intimate time with the Lord. But there's something else interesting about this gate that I want you to see. Look again at verse 3. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. So if you remember, I said with the sheep gate, there were no locks, there were no beams, there were no bars. But with the fish gate, you see all of it. There's beams, there's doors, there's locks, there's bars. And here's why. This is a gate that only Christians go out you go out of as you go into the world to fish. But if you catch a fish, you can't bring them in this gate. They can only enter through the sheep gate. You see, if you talk someone into salvation, they can be talked out of it. So the fish gate needs to be locked from the inside. If you have people coming in through the fish gate, they're going to think they're saved, but they're not because you cannot save them. Only the Lamb of God can do that. There's only one way in. But once someone comes in and gets saved, that's when the third gate comes in. And that's the old gate. We find that in verse 6. It says, Moreover, the old gate 
repaired Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah. They laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. So, so I told you that while we have the responsibility of being fishers of men, walking out that fish gate, it's, it's not our only responsibility. Because according to the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we're to make disciples. And making disciples starts with evangelism, but it also includes taking those new babes in Christ and teaching them and training them to walk the Christian walk, to live the Christian life according to the Christian manual, the Bible. And this is what I believe the old gate speaks to, is discipleship. What you do with people after they've been saved. And it's, it's, it's the next in line after evangelism as we live our lives to God's glory. And here's why I say this. Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. That was the nation of Israel. He, Jeremiah was talking to them about following the Lord, and he equates the old paths as the good way. The way they should walk. Where they will find rest. But they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't follow the old paths, and they wound up in captivity because of it. And when we think of old paths, we typically think of tradition and nostalgia. But that's not what this verse is talking about. The old path has nothing to do with tradition and nostalgia. It has to do with what is biblical. Because God's word is eternal. It's never changing and always has been. And if you study paths in the Bible, you are going to find a connection to God's word. I could give you a bunch of verses. I'll give you the most popular one. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And listen, the old paths are something that need to be taught and caught through the process of discipleship. So Proverbs 23.10 is talking about, says, Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. We need people guiding us. And remove not those old landmarks, the, the, the truths of God's word. See, we need spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers that will keep us on track with what God is doing and how God is working. And that's the other thing that ties this gate to discipleship in, in, the, in the book of Nehemiah. Because in Nehemiah 3.12, which is still the section dealing with the old gate, look at what it says. And next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of... Halahesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. See, this is the one section of, of the gate, one gate and section of the wall where people are building with their children. That's discipleship. Whether it's physical children or spiritual children, it's raising them up in the way of the Lord. So we always need to be learning and sharing and helping and loving, and encouraging, and exhorting, and holding each other accountable, suffering with each other. All of that is discipleship. Let me, let me define it for you this way. Discipleship is helping another person carry out the Christian life in the context of the Word of God. You see, it's not just teaching the Bible. That's certainly part of it, but that's not all of it. It's, it's also an informal, behind-the-scenes investment of the Word of God and your life into the life of another person. Listen, here's what discipleship is not. It's not going through 18 lessons. 
Those lessons are a tool. Discipleship is so much more than that. It's taking the life that you have with Christ and how God has poured his word into you through someone else, just through the teaching of the word of God and the impact it has made on you and is sharing that life with someone else. It's something that results in your walk with Christ being duplicated in your disciples' experience. It's teaching them that old path as you walk together through that old gate. Discipleship is not an academic thing. It is a life thing. You've got to spend time. You've got to build relationships. In fact, listen, this is what made Christianity such a prominent force in the world. So do you know what it was that enabled Christianity to turn the ancient world upside down? What was it that made Jesus the most influential man in history? It wasn't just his teachings. Of course it was that. It was, it was his word. But how did that spread? Through his relationships, as he took 12 men and invested his life into theirs. And they did the same to exponential effect. And here we are today. You see, this is the problem with, with like the Christian world. You have theologians, and they'll talk about Jesus and how he was this great moral teacher, and yet they remain unaffected by him. And the reason why is because those who remain unmoved maybe saw his teachings, but they missed his relationship, and they missed the relationship that they were to have with him. The fact is, the word of God runs through the society on the rails of relationships. And if you first don't have a relationship with someone, you're going to have a hard time teaching them what God has taught you. Jesus had an audience because of the type of person he was, and the way he invested in the men around him. So we build relationships so that we can invest the word of God into the souls of men. And again, with this gate, there are bars and locks, all of it, because you take people who have already come in through the sheep gate, and you walk out with them through the old gate as you disciple them. And those two gates together, the fish gate and the old gate, they make up our primary external ministry to the Lord. That's the Great Commission. We evangelize, we make disciples. And that's what we're to do. But the next two gates then focus on us eternally, in internally, because there's some things we ought to have in our life. And the internal focus starts with the valley gate. And so the, the old gate runs down through verse 12, and you see the valley gate in verse 13. The valley gate repaired Hanum and the inhabitants of Zenoah, and they built it and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof and a thousand cubits on the wall under the dung gate. Now, we'll, we'll get to the dung gate in a minute. I'm sure you're excited about that one. But first, we've got to deal with the valley gate. And the valley gate opened to the valley below the city. There are actually three valleys surrounding Jerusalem, but it opened to the valley below the city. And it, this was the place where Nehemiah began and ended his nighttime inspection of the walls in chapter 2. You can see that in verses 13 through 15. And from a personal perspective, the valley gate is where you and I need to begin and eat and, and end each examination of our Christian life. We, in that message, we talked about examining our lives, examination that we need to make. And, and we need to begin and end here. Because this is a place of humility and submission. The valley was the low place, as all valleys are. And the valley gate represents humility. And are willing to occupy a low place 
in the Lord's service through submission to him. Psalm 86.1, David says, Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. And David asked God to bow down his ear because he was bowed down. He was in a lowly position, a humble position, a submitted position of a servant. And he calls himself poor and needy, and I, and I want you to know that it's good to recognize that. And it's good to admit that we are poor and needy, and go to the valley on purpose to express our dependence and our need for the Lord. And I know this goes against much of what you hear in the world today. But I want you to know that it's okay to embrace the fact that you are poor and needy, like David. That is a biblical position. Let me show you. I mean, first of all, it's how Paul described himself. You can see 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, 8, he says he's less than least of all the saints. Paul considered himself poor and needy. But, but listen, here's why this is so important. It's because it's exactly the opposite of how God describes the Laodicean church. You know, one of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the one that represents our day and age, our culture. So instead of poor, Revelation 3.17 says that the Laodicean church thinks it's rich. And instead of needy, Laodicean church says it's increased with goods and has need of nothing. It's, it's, it's directly opposite. And it's because the Laodicean church doesn't think that it needs God. That it doesn't need to be submitted to God. And listen, if you miss the valley gate, you'll come to the same conclusion. If you miss the aspect of, of every day before the Lord coming to him in a humble, submitted attitude. If you miss that, you'll think you don't need God either. And you might not admit it verbally, but the way you live your life will scream it to be true. And listen, that's our culture. And I hope you hear what I'm saying in all this because the humble, submitted life is Christ-like. It's what he did according to Philippians chapter 2. James and Peter both tell us that God resisteth the proud, giveth grace unto the humble. And I don't know about you, but I need God's grace. But I think the way many Christians live their lives, they don't think they do. So the result is they end up living lives for themselves, only looking to please themselves. And then when that happens, your life isn't about the mission of the fish gate and the mission of the old gate. It's about the mission of self. It's about the mission of you. And let me tell you, those two missions are polar opposite. If you fail at the valley gate, I promise you're going to fail at the fish gate and the old gate. The other interesting thing about the valley gate is that according to Nehemiah 2.13, it's also where you find the dragon well. And you don't see the dragon well any other place in Scripture. But it's no accident that it's found here. So this is the first mention of the word dragon in the Bible. Verse 13 of Nehemiah chapter 2. The first of 18 Bible references where the word is found. And if you know anything about Bible numerology, your ears should perk up when you hear 13 and 18, or 6 plus 6 plus 6. In case you're still not sure where we're going, let me read Revelation 12, 9. It says, And the great dragon 
was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So the Bible is, is pretty clear here. The dragon is Satan. So what's that mean here? Well, as the inhabitants of Jerusalem approached the valley gate, they had to pass a well. It was a picture of Satan. And not necessarily Satan as their enemy, but as Lucifer, who was God's enemy. Because what was Lucifer's sin? It was pride. In Isaiah 14, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times. The very opposite of humility and submission. And for us, the dragon well at the valley gate shows the stark difference between Satan and Christ. Between pride and humility. Listen, the well is something some people had to go to every day to get water. And this is the choice that you and I make every day. It's between him and you. Are you going to depend on the Lord in humility or are you going to depend on the self in pride? And that brings us to the fifth gate. It's the last one we're going to look at today. And then we'll, in two weeks we'll paint the rest of the picture for you. And we'll put the mural together in, in, in one, one landscape. But the next gate is the dung gate. And we find we saw the dung gate at the end of verse 13. We see it being built out in verse 14. It says, But the dung gate repaired Malchiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler, a part of Bethacarim. He built it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. Now, the dung gate is exactly what you think it is. It's the place that they took out the trash and all the other stuff of the city. And for us, this gate pictures cleaning out the junk of our lives. From a discipleship context, this is dealing with sin. And first of all, I want you to notice again, this gate has bars and locks because this gate should be exit only. You need a process to deal with the sin in your life, according to the Bible, to get rid of it and not allow it in. 2 Corinthians 7.1 speaks to this. The verse says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And, and these promises are the, are the promises of Scripture, specifically what Paul had mentioned in chapter 6, but not only that, all throughout Scripture, we, we have great and precious promises that if we were to just hold on to them, they would keep us clean. That's what Psalm 119 verse 9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. His word is able to keep us clean. And, and listen, you know this from a physical standpoint, how important that is to the health of an individual. It's true both physically and spiritually. You see, our body is designed by God in such a way that it is self-cleaning. We'll actually talk about that a little bit more when we get to the water gate. But it's self-cleaning and has the ability to get rid of the waste of our body. And if those organs that perform those tasks aren't functioning properly, you can get into some, some real physical trouble very quickly. 
don't you know that the same is true spiritually? God has given us the ability and the tools to be self-cleaning spiritually. But if we don't use them, if we don't do it, then our spiritual health can be in danger very quickly. This is so necessary to understand. We talked about it a few weeks ago in chapter 1 when Nehemiah was, was confessing to God uh, of this, regarding the sin of Israel nationally. And I told you then that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but an aggressive act of personal rebellion against a holy God. And we've got to be able to see that way. This is one of the problems with Laodicea. We don't see sin the way God sees it. And we, we justify it and cover it up and say, it's, oh, it's not that bad. We've got to be able to see sin the way God sees it. Otherwise, we won't use the dung gate in our life like God commands. We'll be like those described in Proverbs 30, verse 12. says, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. And, and make no mistake about it, he does command this of us. I mean, we've already looked at 2 Corinthians 7, 1, but, but also look at what Isaiah 52, 11 says. Depart ye, depart ye. Go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. Listen, that's a sobering verse. Are you clean? If not, will you use the dung gate in your life like God intended and get rid of the junk that's in it? And it's interesting to me, this is a gate that was repaired by only one man. Malchiah, the son of the Rechab. I'm sure there wasn't a long list of guys who signed up to, to work at this part, to work on this gate. Like, yeah, yeah, I know where I want to work. The dung gate. Let me, let, me, let me go there. But I believe it, it speaks to much more than that. Because when it comes to my life, there's only one person who can do the work to keep it clean. And that's me. And in your life, there's only one person who can do the work to keep it clean, and that's you. Will you do it for God's glory, for your home, for your family, for this church? And the dung gate isn't necessarily fun to talk about, but it's necessary, as are all of these gates. Like I told you at the beginning of this message, there are things that we need in our life. There are things that we need out of. There's doors we need to walk in. There's doors we need to walk out. That's what these gates represent. So do you understand the sacrifice Jesus paid for your life at the sheep gate? And are you willing to sacrifice your life in exchange as you do the work of evangelism and discipleship, as you walk out the fish gate and the old gate? And then are you willing to do the hard work in your own life to stay humble and stay dependent upon the Lord? And then keep yourself clean from this world. Deal with the sin. As it enters in, you've got to do all you can to keep it out. But as you fall into it, to deal with it through a heart of repentance that God requires and desires. And if you could do that, then you're on track to bring God glory in your life. But if not, you still have some work to do. And we look at, when we look at the remaining gates, the, the final five gates next time, you're going to see exactly what that work is, and then we're going to put it all together. 
and one mural. And, and, and listen, I, I mean, I'll tell you now, it's not going to be a big surprise, as these five elements were not. They're basic elements needed in the Christian walk. But they're elements that every single one of us need. If we want to build to God's glory and we want to live our lives that are glorifying to the Lord, first you have to be saved. You have to evangelize. You've got to be a part of discipleship. You've got to live a humble and submitted life to the Lord. And you've got to be able to deal with your sin. If you fail in any of those, you're, you're not going to live the life of glory to the Lord that he desires. So let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as we're preparing to sing this final song, I, I just, again, like every week, I just want you to take the time to examine your life this morning and look at those gates and see where you need to continue to work. And, and, and I don't want to be hesitant or I don't want to be negligent to ask, have you ever entered the sheep gate? Have you ever been born again? And, and we talked about what that means. It's that exchange of life. It's a work that you can't do on your own. It's a work that had to be done by the high priest. But you know what? He did it. And he was that sacrifice. You just have to accept him by placing your faith, your belief in what he did. And you can accept Christ as your Savior and be saved today by just placing your faith in him and letting him know that you're a sinner, asking him to come into your heart and into your life and save you. We, we saw an example of that of a young man that did that this morning and, and, and showed us what he had already done by being baptized. And God will do it. But, but I know that most of you in here are saved. But for you, are you doing that external work of the ministry and evangelism and discipleship? Are you investing God's word into the life of someone else? And if not, will you start today? Will you pray about who you can talk to about the Lord? And are you doing the internal work? of staying humble, staying submitted to the Lord, and staying clean, and dealing with the sin of your life. I know it's hard work, but it's necessary if we're going to be able to, to do all that we're striving to do. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the beautiful pictures that we see all throughout, certainly the Old Testament, and, and all throughout the Bible, and how relevant they are to our life. So Lord, I pray that you work on our hearts even now, and as we're singing this final song, Lord, that we will do the examination of where we're at in these areas. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that's not saved, have never been born again, Lord, that they will see the sacrifice that for themselves today that you did at that sheep gate. And Lord, that they will accept it as their own and, and accept you as their Savior today. And Lord, for the rest of us that know you, I pray that you continue to work on our hearts and move us uh, to how we need to be uh, humble and submitted and, and, and deal with the sin in our life uh, so that we can give you glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.